0: been travelling about two and a half months by this stage already been through China and Tibet interrogated, near missed with an avalanche stuck in this jungle, got collared by some undercover police in China, like all kinds of crazy things, ended up in a car with a drug runner in Kyrgyzstan, I could go <laughs> on and on it was just addictive right from the start across the street from me I remember watching a sniper on a rooftop, petrol station was blown up, his own dad chopped his arm off with a machete seven part rangers were killed in that village by a militia group, just around the time ISIS was still going, you've got mind. Fields which were left by Saddam Hussein in the 80s, and we're talking
1: East Africa here, aren't we? East Africa, yeah. Yeah.
0: Most famous over recent years for its piracy. Turned out he was from MI5. Probably not told on a podcast before.
1: Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Oli France is an adrenaline junkie that has travelled to the most hostile and remote regions on the planet. From the Congo to North Korea, his travels saw him come across ex-KGB, ISIS and even Somali pirates. He also reveals how he was arrested for narcotics and interrogated by the military dictatorship. This is the eventful life of Mr. Oli France. Oli, welcome to the show, mate. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this one. This is a different one for us. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a unique world that I'm
0: in. That I find myself in yeah, definitely. absolutely.
1: Let's roll all the way back. Where yeah. did you grow up, and tell me about some of the mad countries you've been to and why?
0: Okay, well, grew up in a place very different to where I find myself a lot, a lot of the time now. So, grew up in Wigan, Northern England. You know, it's a traditionally sort of working class rugby league town. So, grew up yeah on, on the outskirts of that town. Normal upbringing, really. I uh, played a lot of sport. So got into football and rugby at early age. Actually, we had a really good rugby team. So we got into the national final a couple of times. So age age 13, you know, playing at Millennium Stadium in, in the national final <laughs> for schoolboys. It was, you know, cra- crazy experience at that age. Uh, but certainly the world of adventure and expeditions growing up was never, never even in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know, I did not know it existed. Um, it was... But if I think back to those early years, a lot of, I think I had the traits that that suited what I do now. You know, I wanted to be outside. I was always that kid in the classroom, staring outside, you know, wanting to be outside, wanting to be active. I was kind of sometimes the ringleader amongst my mates, you know, going, getting up to no good or getting up to little schemes here and there. And I, that only really started to play out as I reached into my late teens. And you know, like like anyone at that age, started to ask themselves, right, what do I want to do in my life? And uh, and that was where it started to come together. Um, so that that that's the background, that, that's the early mm. days.
1: So what was the movement then? How old are you today? 32. 32, what yeah. was the movement then to get you to find out that you really want to go on to visit some crazy countries around the world? I suppose it was
0: progressive. So fast forward in a few years, age 17, went on a climbing weekend with some mates in the Lake District. Never done that before. And instantly that hit of adrenaline, being up high on a rock face, you're immersed in that. You've got, yeah, the adrenaline pumping. uh, You are responsible for your own safety. Um, It kind of ticked a lot of boxes for me. It just, it was like an itch, which I I never knew I had, but I, I wanted to scratch it instantly. And so that was really appealing right away. And so off the back of that, I know we were just talking about university i actually signed up to university degree course in outdoor leadership i was thinking about different paths at that stage so you know military was a path potentially or yeah, so, something in the outdoors, something unconventional but i found out about this degree course signed up to it did turn out to be a good experience you know as far as degree courses go mm-hmm. we were out and about climbing mountains uh mountain biking rock climbing kayaking canoeing with some of the uk's best instructors and then, of course, I was immersed in this world where you're surrounded by like-minded people doing that, and so every summer we were being encouraged to go off and have these sort of adventures, and um, and and very quickly unfolded. So, at the age of 19, I was out in Morocco, big two-week expedition, on you know, my own with with some local guides and porters, and living in mud huts, and learnt a bit of Arabic. I uh, worked in America that summer, and the next year I wanted to push things a bit further. So, you know, I was doing my research. Had I'd learned a bit more Arabic actually because geopolitically that area was was yeah the, the Middle East that was that was really heating up at that moment in time you know it's not long after 9/11 I I found myself reading a lot of the news I uh, was really interested in the topics that are happening out there and and wanted to go and kind of see it for myself so this is age 20 you know I'm going through university ordinary guy but I really want to get out into the world, and so age twenty, I go out to Beirut in Lebanon for for a month on my own. You know, it's not it's not a normal thing to do. Uh, I didn't know anybody out there. Uh, didn't know anybody who'd been there. Had no connections. Um, but I went out there. I managed to link up with a local family. Stayed with a local family in in the summer. They hosted me, and and they they were a yeah really very generous family. They fully invited me into their world. Um, Lebanon, for a bit of background for people, basically for the last 30, 40 years, on and off, it's been filled with civil wars, uh, lots and lots of fighting, you know, lots of political unrest, lots of different clans and influences and religious sort of issues in the country. Um, But sort of above all that you've also got like amazing nightlife you've got nightclubs you've I've got heard. you've got beach clubs yeah I've
1: heard yeah so. I was just about to say that I was like I've heard Beirut's the place to go and party
0: yeah I tell you what yeah <laughs> and is. you wouldn't
1: think it would you if you said to me Dodge you fancy kind of Beirut for the weekend I'd be like leave it out I'm not going to Beirut yeah, yeah. but actually a pal said it to me about a year ago and I had a little look I was like I need to go to that place
0: it's it's phenomenal yeah. actually and I I kind of had access to that so one of my friends that I made out there quite well connected, and then I'm, you know, then able to go into these nightclubs and beach clubs, and we're going up and staying in the mountains. But at the same time as all this is going on, like normal normal life, I suppose, then a mile away uh, from where I was staying, a petrol station was blown up um, across the street from me. I remember watching a sniper on a rooftop, uh, walking along the street at night, you know, there was, there was guys sort of dealing dealing handguns or, or doing whatever they were doing in, in the back of this um this SUV. And so it's just like, what what kind of a world am I in? But, you know, for a normal lad from a normal background, mm. seeing all this and then the thrill of it, it was just addictive right from the start. And, you know, then I could go back and tell all my mates, well, you know, yeah. this is what I've been doing this summer. Uh, and it kind of unfolded from there The the, the seed was planted by that point.
1: Wow, how exciting is that? Yeah. A lad from Wigan. I want to know, firstly, why did you choose Beirut? Where did that come from? You're not going to go on the internet and go, oh, I fancy that, or throw a dot at the a map and go, I'll have a bit of
0: Beirut. <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I did do a bit of research. I wanted somewhere that was slightly tasty, I suppose, mm-hmm. and it had just come out. At that time when I went there, it had just come out of a period of unrest. I was looking at going to Syria, actually, and but that was the year of the the Arab Spring all kicked off, mm. and I had plans. I had a guidebook for Syria. You know, I'd started to do some planning, but you know that that was quickly off the cards when the Arab Spring kicked off. And so the Arab I
1: Spring, what's that?
0: Okay, so the Arab Spring back in back in I forget it's twenty ten or twenty eleven. I think twenty eleven. Um, essentially, across the the Arab world, you had a. Sort of a lot of political unrest kicking off very quickly so it was lots of people uh within these countries which are typically dictatorships so syria is a prime example tunisia was another one then expanded to libya then expanded to egypt various other pockets of the middle east and it was essentially people uprising against the dictatorships the, their governments so it was like a revolution which was unfolding across the middle east and that that quickly consumed Syria, which then led to, you know, a decade of civil yeah. war, brutal civil war in, in Syria with lots of factions, terrorist groups popping up.
1: What, wait, so why are you thinking Syria? Um, so surely someone at the age of 20 would be thinking, <laughs> right, Ibiza, a bit of Mallorca, let's go <laughs> to America, let's go. To be you, fair, you I chose, did a bit of that as well. Oh, you done that as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Get out of your system. Got out of the system. Yeah, but yeah, it wasn't yeah.
0: enough. And actually, sometimes uh, you know, trip to Magaluf is a bit more sketchy yeah. than a trip to Syria. <laughs> you know, it's gonna be said It's probably more dangerous it as is. well, isn't it? That Magaluf it is. strip, 3 a.m. 100 percent Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, it, it intrigued me, it intrigued me the more I looked into it. And I wanted to go somewhere different. I didn't know anyone who'd been there. And I think, you know, I probably I wanted to start to create my mark on yeah. on the world or not 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 in a big way but in a personal way it's like what am i going to do to make myself unique to make myself stand out you know i don't know if i'll be applying for jobs in the future or yeah. something but this really is something unique yeah. to go here yeah, to live out in the middle east at the age of 20 19 yeah. have these experiences so that it was it was just that i wanted to push things right from the start
1: and I, I bet that feeling landing back seeing all your mates i'm not saying your mates are working in a boozer or working in a petrol station or the state agents where you're coming yeah. back with a ton load of stories when you're coming back you're probably going what are you guys you've been up to oh, i've been the boozer on the weekend i've done this not much really you're yeah. coming back with this like book of stories is that the little buzz that you want to have in your locker every time you go to a country and to come back with a load of stories yeah 100
0: yeah. yeah and i mean there's been i'm sure we'll get into it but there's been a lot of crazy situations over the years and whenever those unfold part of me is thinking Oh, not this again <laughs> no. but uh, the other part of me is thinking when i get back this is going to be a cracking story yeah, 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 yeah. so yeah i can see both
1: sides where of it did and, you go where did you go yeah. after them when you come back that was your first trip give me another give me another country that you went to that you were like jesus that was a hairy moment there
0: yeah the next summer i was so the, the way i was just a little bit of extra backstory on this the way i was kind of funding these uh, trips at my university they had this travel bursary scheme and i devoted a lot of time to figuring out exactly how I could get money out of the university to fund these travels. (laughs) And So year after year, I was the only student in 35,000 students at university who got it three consecutive years. (laughs) (laughs) They were fed up with me, my applications. I'll just give them some more words. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I learned the system. How much did they give you, roughly? Um, Each trip was anywhere between a grand and two grand, something like that. So, you know, it's enough to fund the trip. Yeah. Uh, you know I was living living cheaply out there mm. um so next the next summer I was off to Uganda day 1 <laughs> day day 1 you know it's just that that in itself has had its turmoil day 1 I was picked up at the airport by an ex Ugandan military general it was like just one thing unfolded to the next and uh, you know driven to this compound on the outside of the city you know, in this old beat up ex-British military Land Rover, he's got an AK-47 lying over his lap, takes me into the boozer with his mates. And next thing you know, we're, we're partying into the early hours in Uganda. And I'm just thinking, wow, what is what yeah. is this world? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so it's just spent, spent a month there going, seeing gorillas and safariing and doing a bit of work in a voluntary work in a school. Um, but it was, yeah, just just that thrill of it, and you know, you're not going to get these, or maybe you can in, in certain walks of life, but rarely going to get these experiences in the UK. Yeah. And so every year, well, I was through university at least. It was always a case of right, what's next? Where's next? How can I find the next? Were big you trying thing? to
1: push boundaries the whole time? Yeah. Were you thinking, right? Hold on a minute. I'll fancy a bit of Uganda because I heard that's madness out there. I want to go to that country. That's mad. is that what's going through your head?
0: In a way, in a way, because it it was addictive, Mm. you know, that that thrill of it. And then the the thing that makes it addictive partly is you come back to normality and suddenly everything feels a little bit flat in a way. You know, you're used to, or you get used to this really high octane, intense environment where you basically, you know, you never know what's around the next corner. You never know who who you're gonna meet, what's gonna happen. And then you're coming back to normal life. And, you know, suddenly everything feels a little bit slow. Mm. Um, it's kind of hard to readjust. So the what, the thing I've always done and it's kind of continued for the last 14, 15 years is is just continue to seek out these experiences. Um, and for sure, like I look back at some of the early years and I was taking risks sometimes that I wouldn't take now and probably a bit naive in sort in mm. of, the, you know some of the encounters and situations, but you know, that's all part of the learning curve.
1: I want to know what goes through your head when you're at home in Wigan with your laptop open going, I fancy a bit of Uganda. What goes through your head about booking accommodation? What goes through your head about, an, is it an open ticket? Or are you saying, well, I want a month in Uganda. Where am I going to get my food from? Where am I going to transport for Are you completely planning every day or are you just going with the flow?
0: Um, in those early days, really going with the flow, okay. like it was a bare bones of a plan, to be quite honest. So you know that that one, I'd found about, I'd found out about this place in rural Uganda. So the the, the main thing was actually volunteering at the school. I didn't expect to be picked up by this army general, you know, <laughs> guns and booze and parties and everything on day one. Yeah. So that was unexpected, um, but yeah, I, I built it around that. And then and then you think, oh, you do a bit more research, oh, you can go and trek with gorillas. Oh, there's some volcanoes you can climb there. Oh, there's this interesting tribe you could go and meet. And then and then you get out there. And actually, I think sometimes if you overplan it, you reduce the opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the magic for me is always being being out there and actually just seeing what unfolds, you mm-hmm. know. And if your freedom, if if you keep your plans free, then you are able to say yes to opportunities and that. That's why I really buzz off, you know, these. And that's when the best things happen. Yeah. You know, when, when things. Yeah, off Absolutely. the cuff, impromptu yeah. experiences, yeah, 100%. Did you
1: ever feel uh, in threat out there in Uganda? Being, um, a, being a white lad. There can't be many white lads out there, right?
0: No, no, not, not at that time. And we were in a very rural area of Uganda. There's, yeah. you know, very few foreigners out there. I think one of the first things you need to get used to is lots of people wandering about with machetes and, yeah. and, and you know, things that you would consider serious weapons over here. And so, you know, I'd be out on a morning run or, a, you know, out and about in the village or something. And, and there's guys walking around with machetes and your instinct is like, well, hold, hold on a minute. Yeah. But you, you learn that that's just normal life out there. Yeah. And, you know, I remember um, there was a guy, just just to give you a bit of extra context mm-hmm. in, into like how things work out there. And this is what I learned while I was out there is there was a guy who was also at this school and he, he had half his, half his arm missing. And, you know, got to know him a little bit and then sort of asked the question, you know, what, what happened to your arm? And he, you know, he, at some point he said he had been, um, he'd been stealing in, in the village and, and sort of the village had heard about it. And what you get in Uganda and lots of other parts of Africa is this thing called mob justice. So essentially, rather than calling in the police if something happens, they will sort it out amongst themselves and basically, you know, dole out the punishment that they see fit. And so that's what had happened. And it was actually his own, his own dad who had chopped his arm off with a machete because, because uh, you know, he'd been caught stealing. And oh so God. that is, you know, that's the sort of thing that yeah. can unfold in these places. Mm. And, you know, he probably got off lightly. There's mm. other people who, who, who wouldn't get off so
1: lightly. But tell, um, tell me about the gorillas. Yeah. What's it like? Are they, is it just wild gorillas running around?
0: Yeah, so there's the, these are mountain gorillas. There's yep. only a thousand left in the world, so they're wow. very endangered. They're in three countries: Uganda, Rwanda, Congo, and they live deep in the rainforest, primary rainforest. So what you can do is head out with local rangers. Again, they're fully armed up to the teeth, and and, and go out and visit these gorillas. You get an hour with them, and I mean the silverbacks—they must be five, six hundred kilograms. You know, their heads like watermelons um five six hundred yeah yeah they are monsters absolutely you cannot believe how did you, how big did you they touch are. D- no but you can get, you can within get close, about can two you? three meters so uh, really close yeah God. yeah i did it in the congo as well actually which is a whole nother story the, yeah so so I, i've seen the gorillas in uganda and the congo congo is just over the border and i mean you, you think uganda something you congo is whole nother level this this was a few years later but um,
1: what's the difference
0: in Congo and Uganda? Okay, so Congo um, has had more casualties than any war since World War Two. So it is that it is you know for the last 15, 20 years, uh, maybe 30 years now, uh, it's basically been filled with civil war. So you it, the entire country or much of the country is littered with militia groups, warring militia groups. Yeah who are you know trying to steal territory there's a lot of there's a lot of wealth mineral wealth in yeah. in, in Congo so that's a lot of the problem so these militia groups are trying to control the mines uh, in in Congo so you've got mines like coltan which is a, a very precious metal about 90% of it's found in Congo that goes into everybody's mobile phones so you know right now very high demand but you've got these warring militias who are all trying to get control of these mines so going into the Congo I mean you are okay so you need armed escorts first of all wherever you go so i was taking a group this was you know fast forward in a few years and um but i, I was leading a group out there and a group of 16 travelers from all over the world i was guiding the uh, we our aim was to go and find these mountain gorillas we had organized uh, armed guards essentially to escort us and once you get out of the city of goma which so this is in virunga national park in Eastern Congo, you got the city of Goma, crazy city in itself. Big active volcano sits over it, which erupts every ten years or so, destroys the city, and then they rebuild it. But as soon as you get out of the city, um, it is just complete bandit country. And I mean, you know, you're driving along, you're seeing young young teenagers with Kalashnikovs. You see people hiding out in in the forests, you know, with, with guns. And and you don't know who is Congolese army, whose militia groups, what their intentions are. Um, so that is, yeah, possibly yeah, one of the sketchiest places I've ever been to, where it feels like anything could kick off at any moment in a big way, and it does very often. So you you're really threading the needle to go there. Did
1: you have any close calls at all?
0: In, in a way, so yeah, we on on that trek. We we were in various different Land Cruisers, so split the team up into various different Land Cruisers. We had which are big sort of Toyota Toyota SUVs. We had armed guards on motorbikes. You know, it's crazy. It's like something out of a film. Mm. And you're driving through rural Congo. You've got guys with guns. You've got jungle all around you. Big volcanoes, you know, steaming and smoking away in the background. And we're off to see the gorillas. Uh, you know, so this is really sort of cutting edge mm. adventure. And at certain point, all of the all of the SUVs split up, and we were going to visit different families of gorillas. We went way up north. Our particular truck. Bear in mind, I, I was leading this this team. You know, I was sort of responsible for them. Uh, we split up. We went far up off north and into this certain area. And as we were signing in at the rangers station there, we noticed we were the first tourists there in about eight months. So you know, no, nobody's really going there, and. Uh, We had an older guy with us, and it's quite a tough trek, you know, to get in through this primary rainforest. It's not like there's paths and trails. You're literally hacking through the rainforest to try and find these gorillas. Uh, Can take several hours. This thunderstorm kicked off. Uh, This this older guy had a trip, you know, bashed his knee up, and now he's struggling to walk. And then uh, we did see the gorillas, amazing experience. Headed back out, and he's kind of hobbling away. Time is ticking on, and nightfall is closing in. As we got back to the truck and our, our guard he said, Look, like there's no way we're driving back at night. It's just far too dangerous to drive at night. You know, that's when a lot of the activity mm. is happening, the bandits are coming out, carjackings, all the rest of it. So it's like, you know, driving back to the city, it's a four hour drive mm. on terrible roads. It's not gonna happen. So we had to come up with a plan B and that was staying in the local village there, you know, tiny little local village. Um, which had just a couple of months before that had experienced big attacks, but we literally had no choice. So we found a place to stay, weren't even allowed to go out and get food or water. So, you know, um, this was unplanned. So we're just sharing amongst ourselves these little snacks. Um, And we did manage to get out the next day, but about three days later, seven park rangers were were killed in that village by militia group. Um, So, you know, it is, yeah, that, that felt very close to the bone potentially some of those rangers were the ones working with us um we never got the details on it but yeah that that was that was a a bit of a a shock to the system and actually that was the first time i'd led an an adult expedition so it was really like straight into the deep end again there's more backstory you know put me in a position to do that but yeah that that was straight into the deep end and these are the sorts of things that can potentially happen Mm. when you you know, when you when you're really pushing the limits.
1: When you say you stayed in a village, explain to me what a village looks like.
0: Mm. Very basic. So, you know, on the surround on the sort of outskirts of the village, you've got basically huts made out of of mud and sticks and and banana leaves. Um the place we were staying in, it was like a concrete building with a some some sort of secure walls around it. So at least we felt relatively secure. And there were a couple of basic huts with sort of metal tin roofs and but, yeah, very, very primitive. Dirt roads everywhere. You know, fires lit in the street. Heaps of rubbish. People wandering about. And um, uh,
1: very, very basic. And it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. You? So you're saying, like, kids walking around 10, 11-year-olds walking around machine guns and yeah. stuff. Mm. How do you know who's who? Like, do they know who's who? Is it a different accent? Are they wearing different clothes? Or is it just everyone free-for-all?
0: They they will. Yeah. But we we don't, yeah. really. And even even the, you know, the park rangers and the armed guards, maybe they would, they spend a lot of time there. But us as sort of outsiders who are seeing it for the first Mm. time is very, very hard to distinguish because they're not in, you know, they're not in like particular uniforms or anything. They're they're literally people who've at some stage, especially the kids, probably been dragged out of a village and forced to join these militia groups. That's kind of how it works there. What what was that movie? Uh, Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond. Yeah, Yeah, what country was that? That was in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone, that's
1: right. Yeah. So thanks. I'm visualising that now.
0: I mean, it's not far off yeah, what okay. Congo looked like when I was there. Okay. Yeah.
1: What's your What was your next movement after that? What was another country that you've been to?
0: Yeah. So one of the next ones I went to was was Iraq. So round about <laughs> round about this time. I mean, <laughs> the, the, there's kind of a lot more before that actually. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. um one of the next ones. I, so at this stage. I'd cut my teeth I'd done a lot of solo travel so like some big solo experiences all over the world and again lots of lots of crazy stuff that I got up to um but then I started to get into this world of guiding teams guiding expeditions and so I'd met a met a guy who runs expeditions out to these weird and wonderful places <laughs> and and so Iraq was was basically the next sort of job that I was offered and I'd never been to Iraq you know, every you think about, you think sort yeah. of destroy buildings, yeah. bombings, uh, terrorists. Um, that's what you see in the news, hundred percent. Mm. And and so, but I was I was intrigued because I'd sort of set this path, and I'd heard about some people going there. I thought, okay, let, let's let's give it a go. And I wanted to, I suppose, take things to the next level still. So I thought, how can I make this more interesting, uh. going to Iraq? So I did a bit of research and I'm, I'm I'm a keen mountaineer. So I do a lot of rock climbing, mountaineering. So I thought maybe I could go and climb the highest mountain in Iraq. That was my plan. And so I did a bit of research. I thought i would go out, guide the team around Iraq, northern Iraq, and, and then add on uh, a, <laughs> a trek to go and climb highest mountain in the country. And, uh, and so that's what I did. And, you know, it's a crazy feeling to be flying in there flying into northern iraq you know you're looking down on this scene here and it seems familiar because it's what you've seen in in the news for for so many years um but actually after that initial few days of what the hell am i doing here you start to relax into it a little bit and and actually you know, it turned out it was, I found it an extremely friendly, hospitable country, which really surprises a lot oh, of people. That's lovely to hear. May, yeah, yeah. Seriously. And, and this is what I've found in so many places. Mm. They are some of the friendliest, most hospitable countries I've ever visited. Uh, and I mean, people inviting you into their houses, sharing drinks with you, you know, bringing you extra food, um, wanting selfies with you, wanting to show you around the village, things like this. So this is happening constantly. And I think partly that's, local people trying to dispel this myth that they think you have, um, which I which I believe is true. So the thing that media never reports on is, you know, there's people out there getting married, of course, yeah. building businesses, live, raising children, yeah. living ordinary lives. But that's the thing that we don't see. Mm. So I do feel, you know, having been there, I have a responsibility to just spread that word yeah. a little bit.
1: That's really nice to hear, by the way. Yeah. Because you do. Whatever is shown in the news, Whatever people just think, oh, it's war, people are fighting, build- buildings being bombed and... There's obviously millions of people living a nice life and, and doing good for themselves. Which you, you never hear about. No. Ever. You,
0: you don't you don't hear Until about it. Until we
1: get people like you, Ollie, telling us. Well, you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> No, I, I feel like I need to because there's not many people going there. And having seen it and spent, you know, many months of my life in these countries, if not years, um, you know, I I've I've met people, I've had conversations, I've been to people's houses, I've shared meals. Uh, I, you know they've helped me out of lots of sticky situations as well so I feel like I do have that responsibility to just tell people it, it's not what you think mm. and uh, you know the, the, the media is only ever going to tell you the bad stuff mm. in reality. And why did you choose Iraq? So that one was offered to me that one was offered to me as as a potential job to go and guide and so I thought that's going to be interesting and you know I, I, I did my own research and felt that it was, it was safe enough to go and do so a bit, of, a bit of additional sort of background. We we were in northern Iraq, so it's known as the Kurdish part of Iraq. It is known to be a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. So you've got you have got sort of UK and American interests up there in that region. You've got a bit of an overseas presence in that area, um, but there are still potential issues. You know, we were there just just around the time that the ISIS was still going. You know, fighting. So roughly, in Iraq. what year was this? First time I went there was 2018. 18, okay. 2018, yeah. So five years ago now. Uh, been back a few times since. Um, but yeah, to to come back to my original story, I was I was going to climb the highest mountain in Iraq mm. at the end of this trip. So led the trip, all gone, you know, smoothly. Seeing the group off, and then I was out there on my own. And so the 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 highest mountain in Iraq. It's based up near the Iranian border. Very hard to get to. Politically sensitive sensitive region. Uh, you need to go through a lot of checkpoints to get there. And and the, the, other, the other few things, this mountain, around the base of it, you've got minefields, quite a lot of minefields, which were left by Saddam Hussein in the 80s. Um, you've also got in that region some militia groups who are fighting against, uh, well, some of them fighting against the Iraqi government. Um, so it's quite a tense, dynamic region where there's lots of, lots of different things going on. So I knew I couldn't go there without you know really making a robust plan and I, I managed to find who who turned out to be the the best mountain guide in the country he was living in this particular village he helped me get in through these checkpoints made it to this village and yeah we were we went off and climbed this this big snowy mountain sort of a three and a half thousand meter quite serious mountain yeah made it to the top actually skied back down and I mean actually in the week I was there two two local people were killed in that valley by, by landmines. Um, so what some people do is go into the minefields because there's very little income in the, in the region. Some of them will be picking wildflowers and fruits and things to sell at market. And some of them would actually be going out actively looking for mines, digging them up, care- trying to do it carefully and then opening them up and, and selling the, mi- the, the lead within them because they can get about $10 for the lead within them. Jeez. And, and that, you know that's what they're doing for cash. And so one of those people was was killed in the week I was there. Um, drove past the funeral, and and so it that that brought it home again. But um, well then the, the evening, and I the evening, and I got back into town. I met I met the guy who'd driven me out there. He he come out. We were going to have pizza in the town, stay the night in the village, and then head back to the capital. I was going to fly out of there. And uh, we were walking along a street, and there was a guy walking along in front of us with this strange kind of swagger, walking in the same direction, a few meters in front of us, didn't think too much of it. Dark, you know, nighttime, no no lights on the street. And suddenly, turned around, pointed a handgun straight at my chest and at my guide's chest and just waved it between us. And it was so random, mm-hmm. you know, so out of the blue. Mm-hmm. We could never, you know, you can't anticipate something like that just mm-hmm. happening in, in the instant. We were too far away to do anything and there was certainly nowhere to hide. So it was just this standoff it felt like it felt like minutes but it was probably seconds mm. where we're just staring at this thing frozen to the spot you know it's had, happened so suddenly. And we looked, we looked him up, up and down, looked into his eyes, and eventually he just kind of laughed and tucked it back into his trousers and walked away. Oh, and I God. think you know he, he's just mad, or yeah, you know, there's certainly something not quite right. Wasn't asking for
1: money or anything. He wasn't asking wow. for money. He
0: was just, yeah, it was just a completely freak incident. Wow. But just to, there's another little story there, which uh, just to talk about some of the crazy things that, or the weird and wonderful things that can happen. So the night, uh, the, the day after that, I. Been driven back to the city and uh my my driver we, we him and i were having some food in this restaurant he was going to drop me at the airport afterwards uh we were reflecting on the trip all that eating some food he got a phone call and he's kind of answering this phone call looking at me up and down and kind of smiling a little bit and he gets off the phone and said what, what was that then and he said, uh, I've, got, I've got some friends who are in the, in the media industry and, and they know I work with foreigners. And so we're looking for a, a white guy to play the lead role in a commercial <laughs> commercial <laughs> uh, for chickpeas. For chickpeas. <laughs> <laughs> <Random>. <laughs> so I'm like, right. <laughs> he said, so do you want to meet them? Yeah. I'm like, go on then, this, let's yeah. see what happens. Yeah. And, so, and so they came around about 20 minutes later and they started to, to pitch this idea. And they said, yeah, it's, so it's, it's Iraq's biggest chickpea brand. And we want to run a series of adverts and we want a, a sort of a Westerner to appear in it as the, as the lead role. Uh, and um, and they said, so what it would be, it's a series of adverts. First advert, you're walking around the market, you know, browsing these chickpeas, you have a taste and you're like, mm. <laughs> like okay, I can do that. And then a couple of episodes later, you're hosting a dinner party, you're handing out the chickpeas and all your guests are loving it. And Anyway, that... You know, next thing I know, I'm in this skyscraper in Iraq being auditioned for the lead role <laughs> in a chickpea. Yeah, literally. Like, I couldn't believe this thing unfolding. And they sent it off to the producers. And uh, and actually, they, they wanted me. But by the time they wanted me, I was already on the flight back home. Uh, so anyway, it didn't happen. But I was, you know, this is just some of the random things mm. that can happen. So in when, these-
1: you, when you land back home, what then goes through your head? You're like... I need that buzz again. Get me out of Wigan. Get me to another mad country or a country I've never been to. I'll need another adventure. Is that constantly going, in, going on in your head? More or
0: less. Yeah, yeah more or less. So it, I, I really buzz off going to new places all the mm. time. So, you know, I want to be going to different places. And then because I'm traveling with lots of other well-traveled people and, and constantly making new connections mm. and networks all over the place, you hear about places that you, okay, I need to add this to my list. That sounds great. I want to go there. So it, it just unfolds and it get, you, the list gets bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. you know, all these things that you want to do. Um, so, uh, and the intensity of it just gets addictive. So, you know, for a few years there, I'm, I'm going to 12, 15 countries a year. So it's, you know, it's more or less back-to-back expeditions. It's Somalia one week, Yemen the next week, Syria. Um, and, and the intensity of it is what gets addictive. Mm. Yeah.
1: Tell me your experience about Somalia and what are the Somalians like?
0: Yeah, Somalia again. I was I was guiding a group out there, so we'd just come in from northern Ethiopia, where again we'd 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 had some some issues. So, funnily enough, this this big bit of civil unrest—I will come on to Somalia—but this big bit of civil unrest had just kicked off in Ethiopia, and you know. T- to explain what some of these things can kick off over. It was a football match, a Premier League football match, Arsenal versus United, the two biggest supported clubs in Ethiopia, as it turns out. Uh the controversial thing had happened. It all kicked off in a bar, in a bar. Some people had ended up being killed. And next thing you know, it's, you know, countrywide civil unrest in Ethiopia. And we were caught up in this. Like, over this, a Man United over, Arsenal over match. Over a Premier League match. Bloody I don't on. even know if that made yeah. the news out here, but this is what happened. And so next thing you know, we're driving along this road uh on on, on a on a coach we were going from place to place uh, doing a bit of trekking and and we were surrounded by this this armed mob with uh, with machetes with sticks um and had to sort of negotiate our way out of that one and here kind of have first of all having good local contacts really helped and secondly just really having our, me in particular having my finger on the pulse of what was happening and why was why was it happening in that country so i knew that Although it was a mob, and you never know what might happen with a mob, I knew they wouldn't or shouldn't have a, an issue with us as outsiders. Like we've got no skin in the game, um, so they they saw that eventually and, and let us drive on. Um, but yeah, then then we made it into Somalia. Again, we were <laughs> there, so you know it's it's from <laughs> one place to the next. Yeah. But um,
1: and we're so, talking East Africa here, aren't we? East Africa, yeah. yeah
0: okay. So this is sometimes known Somalia is known as the Horn of Africa. Yeah. Um, most famous over ye- recent years for its piracy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, any any ships going through that area would have to be very, very careful about the risk of pirate attacks. Uh, it is mainly in sort of west, uh, eastern, sorry, in southern Somalia, where a lot of the, the main issues were. We were in northern Somalia, which is known to be a little bit safer. But again, we did have armed guards. Um, one of the issues, though, is, is everyone is completely off their head, yeah. <laughs> almost constantly, on, on-, this, on this thing called CAT or CHAT which is basically a leaf which you chew all day. It's quite a mild thing, but you know they end up um they end up you know really really talkative, really exaggerated. Um and so, you know, even our armed guard is on this stuff, our driver is on this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, how reliable they'd actually be <laughs> if something was to happen. What is yeah. it like
1: getting stoned? Is it a relaxed yeah, yeah, vibe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably okay. more okay. like getting stoned. Okay.
0: Yeah, but maybe may a bit a little bit weak, but yeah. they're just chewing this stuff all the time basically. And so they're kind of on their own planet. Um but anyway, you know, one one it it turned out to be a relatively straightforward trip that one. One of the quirky things we did do, we did do a, a little boat boat journey off to see some of the uh some of the abandoned ships off off the shore. So probably one of the few groups who's done a boat trip in Somalia, you know, potentially pirate infested waters, mm. but um but that that one turned out to be okay actually, not And to- it mad
1: like we've had a we had a load of SAS and SBS special forces on here and the days when the ships like the SAS when they left, or the SBS when they left, the special forces were put onto the ships to protect the ships because yeah. Somalian pirates were going on there with machine guns. There was God knows how many two or three years where the lads on the boats on the ships weren't allowed machine guns. Yeah, they were fighting them off with their hands and throwing stuff at them or whatever they're doing while the Somalians are jumping on the back of the ships and taking them hostage. Wow, how mad is that?
0: It, it, it is. It is crazy. Um, I mean that that that's a whole new whole new level, really. Yeah. And we weren't. Certainly, like, the dynamic is very different for us as, you know, essentially tourist groups or traveling groups. You know, we're not there to fight people off and things like that. And if you go into it with that mentality, you're going to get yourself in yeah. trouble. So what I always do, particularly guiding groups, is and there's been incidents where, you know, we, we've had confrontations and there's been... You know, people have had guns and machetes and, and different things. And there's been, you know, I've had to negotiate our way out of it. Uh, and so for me, my go-to is always de-escalating the situation. Because, yeah. yeah. of course, we're just unarmed, ordinary people. If you start to be aggressive yeah. and escalate the situation, it is not going to end well. You don't know who the, who these people really are, what they've got, who they could bring in if they needed to. Um, so for us, it's, it is a different dynamic. But actually, that that helps sometimes the fact that we're not armed, um, we're not there, you know, in any sort of military capacity. I think people give us generally like an, an easier time.
1: How would you react if someone confronted you? Are you very like hands in the air? I'm just a adventurer. I'm yeah. just on here on holiday. Holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like, is that how you would be?
0: Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. So it's diffusing the situation. Yep. And I think one of, yeah, you never like, like to talk about what, what you're good at or bad at, but um, something I have honed over the years is staying very, very calm and very relaxed. Mm. So I will just try and bring that temperature right down, you know, speak to that That's them. a
1: superpower, by the way, staying calm in, in tough situations, yeah, whether it's business, it's, whether it's adventures, or whatever.
0: It, it, it's proved useful, definitely. Yeah. And and that has got me out of a lot of situations where, yeah, if I was to react aggressively and, and try and try and fight back, like we you know you're a stranger in foreign lands mm. potentially hostile areas mm. you do not want to be aggressive to raise the stakes raise the temperature of that situation so for me it would always be okay how can i relax this person how can i, how can I communicate with them on a human level mm. um, try and find some common ground try and show them that we're not a threat and usually it only takes a minute or two to sort of talk them around yeah. to calm them down uh you know Nine times out of 10, that that works.
1: Have you ever been anywhere where there's a language barrier? Or do most people speak English?
0: Oh, the or majority of places English. I go to, there's a language barrier. A huge language yeah. barrier. Yeah. So
1: I, how are you communicating with someone who can't understand what you're trying to say? It, body language. Yeah, body yeah.
0: language. You know, it, it's amazing. It, it really surprises people, but you can communicate quite well with, with people who don't speak the same language as you. Mm. Sounds crazy to say it, but you really can. And that is, yeah, showing your body language, trying to, trying to point and explain what, what you're trying to do there or, you know, finding some common ground that you can talk about, you know, maybe they've got some food in their hands and you can yeah. have a laugh about it. And and you can, you can, like, you can make people laugh, you know, you can you can share a joke even without sharing the same language. Mm. Um, sometimes we'll have local guides and things who will be able to interpret for us. But yeah, it, it doesn't always, I, I think what I always try and do is just find that human level mm. um, because I just have this real sense that you know, they're no different to who I am. Mm. They've got their own worries and stresses and same as me, and they've got, you know, their own relationships, their own things going on. We're, we're we're both just human beings and I try and interact with them on that human level.
1: And I think that works, you know, just finding common ground essentially. Mm. I see a ring on your finger. Yeah. Married. <laughs> I am. How supportive is your wife for you going off and doing all these ventures? Well,
0: yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean incredibly supportive. We've been together, we've been married for seven years. And so she, I mean, right from the start, I've been doing this my whole adult life, you know, she knew what she was getting herself into. And we we had, you know, I, I'm always very, very open in, yeah, in life in general and sort of what my goals are, what, what I want to do. Um, and so right from the start of our relationship, you know, I was very open about this is what I want to do. This is who I am. Uh, and she understood it you know i made a lot of sacrifices for her to help her with with her career mm. and things over the years but yeah she she's she's very supportive and you know i do consider we're we're a really good team mm. i think a lot of that comes from the fact i've done this for a number of years now and you know i've got a good sense of risk and what i you know how far i'm willing to push things mm. and and so she you know she trusts me she trusts my decision making often i will run scenarios through with her so, you know, I will if I'm going off to some destination, maybe she'd even question, you know, my wife Emma would even question me on on, uh, you know, what or, you're going to do if this happens yeah. or, or what you're going to do if this happens. Yeah. And if I can't answer it with really solid you know, questions, then it's time for me to go and have a rethink. Yeah. But I, I always want to get to that point where I, especially now guiding groups, I am 100 percent just covering every eventuality. Brilliant.
1: Yeah. And you're 31 today. 32. 32. 32. Yeah. And have you thought about kids? We've got two kids. You've got two kids as yeah, well. Yeah, and you're yeah. and you're off track. Well, fuck fair play. Fair, yeah. fair play to Emma if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll Look, play yeah. that one on repeat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Get you some brownie points here, really Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me give me a give me another country you've been to. You've been to seventy countries, right? What is that? Hundred and ninety five yeah. countries in the world. Yeah, hundred and ninety five. Hundred ninety five so. in the world. You've done seventy of them. Seventy five now. Seventy five. Yeah. Wow. Give yeah. me a pick another country for me
0: okay uh I'm gonna rewind a little bit yeah. to so this is always a, a good story to share you know if you want a good story so um I, I'd finished uni got out got out of university went overseas for a year you know traveling about working in different places all over Australia Asia back to the UK ended up in this job I hated so for a couple of years there I was in this corporate world Uh, I was actually working for a kitchen manufacturer trying to sell kitchens hated every minute of it you know but it had all these things like salary car uh, bonus scheme all the rest of it and I was being kind of sucked into this line of work but I mean the person I was then is unrecognizable from who I was now like I would lounge around I felt demotivated I just felt this sort of passion just slipping away but it got to the point where I thought I need to get myself out of this, and so with all of these things going on, at that that time was due to get married, just taking on a house, was starting a house renovation, um, decided to quit the job, like you know, and and really make a go for it with this life of adventure and expeditions, and and the thing I came up with was was uh, doing a big solo trip from Hong Kong to Istanbul, so that's essentially the full length of Asia yeah. on my own in the middle of winter. Is traveling by any means, but so you
1: were flying in, you flew into Hong Kong, Hong Kong, and you want to work your way back,
0: yeah, all the way back to Istanbul. Wow, right the way across the middle of Asia in the middle of winter on my own and climb <laughs> mountains in every country.
1: Is that right? So, that, wow. that was the plan. How many, country, how many countries in total was that?
0: I went through 11 countries on that trip, uh, yeah, all traveling over land. And so, you know, I could speak for ages on that, but to come to one particular story, um, about been traveling about two and a half months by this stage already been through china and tibet i've been interrogated had this near miss with an avalanche in kazakhstan in Laos, got myself you know stuck in this jungle um yeah got 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 collared by some undercover police in china like all kinds of crazy things ended up in a car with a drug runner in kyrgyzstan like i mean i could go on and on but i mean it, keep it, going it, keep yeah going. well i will i'll come to the best story yeah, yeah. um so anyway got into tajikistan where's that Tajikistan is in Central Asia, so Central Asia is these, yep. this band of five countries, yep. south of Russia, and so they're all once part of the ex of the Soviet Union. Mm. So there's a big rough, Russian influence there. So you got Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan—five countries, Central Asia, all with their That's own. all part of Asia. Those it's countries. All part of Asia. Wow! Yeah, never have guessed that. Yeah, yeah all mm. part of, and, and it's a very, scenario an area which people tend not to know much about. You yeah. know, it's sort of forgotten about. Mm. But each of those countries has got its own unique flavour and uh, and personality in a way, and its own issues. Uh, and one of the things to,
1: to how do, how, it's on issues. It's, oh, its it, own it's issues. Own okay, issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So one of the things was um, in in that region. So it's just north of Afghanistan. So this was something I was learning as as I was travelling through the region. Which you know, there's a reason I'm going to tell you this. Uh, Afghanistan produces ninety five percent of the world's heroin. Yeah. Uh, much of which I found out goes up through this area of Central Asia into Russia, and then it dispersed, dispersed across Europe. From, yeah, okay. Um, so that that is, tends tends to be what ha- what happens. So these countries are very very hot on you know drugs gangs who who are operating in that region. Yeah. Um, so as I said, I, at one point, found myself in so even taxi drivers, things like that, ordinary guys, you know, they'll be helping to shuttle this thing around, um, uh, and I witnessed that firsthand. You know, just by some unusual coincidence ended up in a taxi drive, in a taxi in Kyrgyzstan. Anyway, fast forward, Tajikistan is south of Kyrgyzstan. I was travelling through, and the next destination was Uzbekistan. So, Uzbekistan is, or it was at that time. This is 2016, so seven years ago. Um, it was a really brutal dictatorship. So, in terms of the freedom of its people, it was second only to North Korea. So that is the kind of level it's at wow. uh, so a really really Uzbekistan Uzbekistan okay yeah so a really strict police state so very heavily heavy surveillance Uzbek people will find it very difficult to leave a country um you know the thing was the place is on you know pretty much locked down and they're very limited restricted on what they can do uh, and particularly as a tourist going there or a foreigner you're gonna be instantly of interest to yep. the to the authorities. Yep. And so I'd heard stories as I was traveling through this region of just be careful once you get to Uzbekistan because it is it's different to the other places. So I had this in my mind and late at night or sort of in the evening, I was crossing over a land border from Tajikistan to Uzbekistan. So how these land borders work, you've got the Uzbek, the that's Tajik side, uh, you'd then go through there, get stamped out of Tajikistan, walk over what's called no man's land and then enter Uzbekistan to go in through the other side. So... Uh, and because of the political situation, there's really not many people going back and forth through this area. So it's pretty much just me late, you know, late in the evening crossing this land border. And um, as I was leaving Tajikistan, he tried to extort me, tried to get some cash out of me, argued against that. thought, you know, okay, got away with it. Solved, problem solved, off into no man's land, across into the Uzbek uh, side, got my passport stamped. I thought, okay, no problem. It was actually a friendly greeting at first, uh, yeah, I'm in, like, what, what? what's the issue? And then he sent me through into this next room in, in the Uzbek side of, of the border crossing. And, and suddenly the atmosphere just changed. And so it was a big sterile room. There were three guys in military uniforms and they said, put your bag down. We want your phone, your laptop, your camera, any electronic equipment, uh, get, hand it all over. So I was forced to hand that over. They started to go through the files on my laptop pictures on my camera, you know, opening up my phone, looking at whatever they wanted to see. Uh, at this point, you know, what I can do about the situation is is quite limited because I'm completely on my own in another country, you know, be being sort of uh, just dealing directly with these military people at, at the border post. So, you know, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'll just get on with it. I'll let them do what they've got to do. I have nothing to hide. And then, you know, I'll, I'll be on my way. So full body search, full bag search, going through all this stuff. And I thought, and they were starting to hand it back. I thought, okay, like n- no issues. Uh, but the last thing they checked was my first aid kit. And in my first aid kit, I had Cocodamol tablets. I had a bit of a knee injury at the time. And so I was taking these, they're you know normal prescription drug here in the UK. Unbeknown to me, they're classed as an illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan because they contain trace amounts of, of opium uh within kokodomo oh. so from that moment forward i was classed as an illegal drug trafficker in one of the world's strictest police states and then you know my whole world just felt like oh shit you know it came crashing down um and then next thing uh i was led out to this border post at, at the border and under underwent a four-hour interrogation they speak very limited english by the way so there was a language barrier there you know, I was having mug, mug shots taken. Uh, there were the tab- tablets laid out in front of me. I was getting photos with these tablets. You know, uh, <laughs> going through all this, they're interrogating me like, "What have you got these for? Where are you going? Who are your contacts?" Um, and eventually, at the end of this four-hour interrogation, they printed off these papers all in in Russian um, and said, "Okay, it's going to be much better for you if you sign these." And I'm looking at these things. Uh, you know, I cannot understand them, no idea what I'd be signing. And I just said to them, look, there's no way I'm going to sign these papers. I have no idea what they say. Um, uh, And you know, something clicked and I thought, right, what I want to do is speak to the British Embassy, um, try and see if they can help and said, right, well, you're spending the night here and then tomorrow morning you can call them. So they put me in a cell overnight at the border post, got up the next morning, I'd flick through my guidebook, found the British Embassy number. And they said, okay, you got one phone call, three minutes, Here's the phone, and so dialed dialed uh, the British Embassy up, picked up the phone, and this was a f- uh, Friday in late March 2016, and got this automatic voice message saying, "Hello, it's Good Friday. We'll oh, be closed my- until the following Tuesday." <laughs> oh, my- phone down, taken <laughs> away, back to square one, and like I've not, I've got no phone signal out here. Uh, you know they're very restrictive, so like outside. SIM cards and things w- wouldn't work. Uh, no Wi-Fi, basically no contact with the outside world. So I'm completely on my own detained as this drug trafficker with no help from the embassy. and they want me to sign these papers, which I don't know, yeah, you know, I have no idea what they say. So I'm like, right, I, how can I how can I get myself out of this situation or improve my situation? And I said to them, first of all, I want an interpreter who can tell me exactly what this says. They said, okay, well, we're going to have to drive down to the Afghan border. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, fantastic. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, they drove me down to this city called Termez, a couple of hours away. It was basically just me in this in this van with a load of military guys. They're, you know, treating me like this high value criminal. And um, got me down to the city, found me an interpreter. Then they went into this medical area. I had to give blood and urine samples to try and prove that this thing wasn't still in my system. Uh got an interpreter, got a lawyer and and they eventually, you know, explained what the things said and said, "Okay, what it's come down to is you've got two choices. It's either 30 days in jail or uh, or a fine. You pay a fine." And uh and they this I said, "Okay, what's the fine?" and they said $1,000. Uh and, you know, I I, I sort of I wanted to negotiate the best position. So actually managed to bring the fine down to $500, you know, at at first. So anybody thinking is, is, is this a bribe? Um, actually it, it wasn't. So that, that ship had sailed at the border post. I'd made a couple of, uh, suggestions, you know, about, about, about doing that, but they weren't taking it on. These guys were really serious. So, you know as i'll as i'll come on to this was you know a proper fine through the courts and everything um so yeah that that was the option but i didn't have the hard cash the hard currency i had a couple hundred dollars or something i thought okay i will and get the cash and they said no you can't in uzbekistan you can't use visas or Mastercards. so i'm like what am i going to do I, I can't physically get my hands on the cash they allowed me one more phone call so i called my dad this is about 5 a.m. in the UK, Saturday morning. You know, uh, he's still in bed. And I said, Right, I'm in a bit <laughs> of a spot of trouble here. <laughs> and uh basically I explained the situation. And the only thing I could come up with was he could Western Union transfer some cash direct to a Western Union br- branch which I'd seen on the street there. He managed to sort that. A few days later, managed to get myself get my hands on the cash. In the meantime, I was held under house arrest at this dingy hotel, wasn't allowed to leave the hotel room. While I was there, there were people coming in the room, really serious, again, taking my phone off me, intimidating me, kind of harassing me. At one point I did sneak out the hotel because I got fed up with them and wanted to try and get on some Wi-Fi somewhere, which I did manage to do. Um, But yeah, eventually uh, they said, okay, you've got the cash. But one of the funny things is as well, in Uzbekistan, the currency, the denomination is so small, that when you convert $500 mm. to Uzbek money is literally a bag full of cash. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I had this carrier bag full of cash <laughs> and then they drove me out to what was an ex KGB compound on the outskirts of the city. So there I am, bag full of cash, walking <laughs> into a <an> ex <ex-KB>, KGB <laughs> compound to pay my way out of prison. And so I went in there, you know, took them bloody ages to count all this money and eventually gave my passport back and said, this guy who'd been sort of hassling me for the past few days said, okay, you can go to the airport now and you can go home. But I was only halfway through this journey across Asia, this journey which I'd committed everything to, quit my job for. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, there's, there's no way I'm 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 going home. <laughs> that is not part of my plan. So what I'd done, I, I'd made friends with the interpreter by this point. He was the one person who I felt I could trust because we had that, you know, we we'd spoke similar language and he was talking about wanting to come to England. I'm like, oh, I can, you know, let's see what I can do. So anyway, I've I made friends with him and he he was due to take me into the taxi to the airport. And they, you know, there was going to be seen off in, in the sort of government ties. But I said to him, look, I, I don't want to go to the airport. I want to carry on my journey. So I want to go up to the mountains. I'm going to go and climb a mountain in Uzbekistan and carry on from there. And he agreed. So he got me into this taxi. Uh, went up to the mountains, a few hours away, I thought, okay, first thing I need to do uh, is c- contact home, you know, give them an update. Um, so I walked around this town, no way of contacting home, no phone signal, no wifi, nothing like that. Uh, but, and, and so I couldn't update them, you know, I knew they'd be worrying about me, thinking I'm banged up in some Uzbek jail. But I bumped into these, these local guys, sort of boxers, and they, you know, had black eyes and gold teeth, really tough looking guys. Uh, but they were they were super friendly and and they sort of showed me around the town and 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 you know we we went out one of them owned a bar so we started having a few drinks and things and this felt like a uh, sort of two fingers to the state in a, in a way it felt like a bit of a release day party mm. and um, but sure enough an hour into this there was a knock on the door and policemen came in dragged me outside checked the passport and paperwork and um, you know just said we we're, we've got eyes on you basically. Couple of hours later, there was another policeman who who, who got all of us and basically sent us all back to the hotel. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just rein it in a little bit. I'll mm-hmm. go back, I'll try and keep a low profile. Next day, climb a mountain, spent a full day up there, 14 hours, uh, got back on my own, you know, knackered, ready to go into my hotel room. And then I'm like, right, job done. As I got back to my hotel, I saw the same policeman who'd been hassling me the day before. I was in the shadows on the street, just watching him. He pulled up to the hotel, walked along the front of the hotel, got to what I knew was my bedroom window and was spying in through the, the bedroom window like this. So, you know, at, at that point, the paranoia really started to mm-hmm. kick in
1: um, at, at that point Jesus well, Christ what about the other week the week before that I'll be yeah, off skis, yeah. get me back to London ASAP yeah I know I mean <laughs> mate I would have more of the fear like they went I'd oh, take your phone if you take this or if you did it and then they, they, they showed the rubber glove they go yeah
0: yeah <laughs> fortunately I was never
1: treated to the rubber glove therapy
0: <laughs> uh, just to clear on that yeah uh, that didn't happen um, but yeah like this time I mean, now everything with all this build buildup, uh, I was like, get me the hell out of yeah. here, man. Yeah, you know, I, I am done with this country and feeling really paranoid. So after he left, got, got myself into the room, sort of hung a big blanket because it's just like thin neck curtains yeah. over the window. Uh, got a couple of hours rest. And then the next morning, 4 a.m., jumped in a taxi and basically changed taxis in every town mm. across the country because I was so paranoid by that point. Managed to get onto an overnight sleeper train out into Kazakhstan, like a 36 hour journey or something, get myself out of the country. But yeah, um, I mean, that that was just a crazy experience. And
1: that's Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Then you went into Kazakhstan. Yeah. What's Kazakhstan? Do you know when I think Kazakhstan, mm. do you know what I think? Yeah, I can guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our oh, mate, Borat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Is that yeah. Naz? Nice? Yeah. yeah,
0: you, you <laughs> don't want to bring that up at the yeah. border post, no, I can no, tell you no. that.
1: Didn't they get really upset? Didn't they get upset when Borat went out there and filmed? Then they saw the movie all about the country. There was a massive kickoff, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, yeah. He, he didn't film it there. I think he filmed it in Romania or somewhere oh, like he? that. So he didn't film it there, but one of the things that did happen at some stage because this film took off so much was, uh, I mean, it's terrible really, but uh, there was some sort of Asian Games or something like that and this Kazakh athlete was competing it, I think it, it was somewhere in the Gulf States like in Dubai or somewhere mm. like that and on, on the ceremony as they stood up to get their medal instead of the Kazakh national anthem playing it was the theme tune of Borat you know which is just
1: oh, yeah what's so the someone flick the, flick the someone's song someone's
0: obviously done some browsing picked the wrong thing and then you've got the, the Borat mate, theme tune that is genius it'll be out there on YouTube somewhere <laughs> but I mean I need to find that so yeah we you, need,
1: lads we need to find that ASAP I need you, to hear that uh, yeah,
0: you, yeah you, you don't want to reference that film no. when you're in Kazakhstan yeah, I can yeah. tell you that but actually Getting into Kazakhstan wasn't too easy because at that point I'd been travelling three months, got a big bushy beard, long hair. Mm. They thought I was on a fake passport. So I'm like, oh for God's sake! So they interrogated me for ages. You know, I had to show them
1: pictures. And did anyone ever think you are undercover, old Bill, or undercover doing something, or you're a spy, or like you're you're, you know you yeah white lad, fresh face. English lad traveling around. You're standing like a sore thumb in all these countries. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, that that's happened quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah so that's happened in multiple countries. Mm. So I've been interrogated in probably 10 different countries now. and <laughs> You know, there's, there's story or, or more, for various different Mate, reasons. We, me
1: and you need to go on the piss for the night. I want to hear all these stories. <laughs> there's so many. An hour is <laughs> not enough. <laughs> there's endless <laughs> stories. But
0: what can I give you as uh, some of the best ones? So probably the most serious interrogation, one of the most serious ones was coming back into Turkey, actually. So, again, i have been in in Iraq, and this was politically a really hot time. So uh, that ISIS were, were fighting, and actually, this this part of Turkey, as I le- as I learnt, this was where a lot of the foreign fighters were flying into and then smuggling themselves over the border into Iraq and Syria to fight for ISIS, right. essentially. Okay. So the the Turkish government are you know really really have a strong presence down there. So as you're driving along, you've got Big armed trucks, you've got tanks, you've got soldiers everywhere in this little pocket of Turkey. Again, I'd been back out in Iraq, guided another team out there, and we were crossing back overland into Turkey. And uh, as we got across the border into the Turkish side, a bunch of us were pulled aside. So four of us were pulled aside and later learned through some uh, conversations that they were Turkish intelligence who'd, who'd pulled us to one side. Uh, They pulled us into an office, and this was a really serious interrogation. You know, these guys were were not messing about. Mm -hmm. So, again, phones were taken from us. So, they pulled in me. There was a guy who's from one of the Gulf countries. He's actually got some connections in the intelligence world. So, that's probably why they've pulled him. There was a French journalist who was on our trip. So, anyone who's a journalist, they're going to get interest. Um, and so we were we were really, yeah, heavily interrogated there. What what are you doing in this region? You know, really having to, to prove ourselves. So this interrogation went on for a couple of hours. Uh, we, we, we did get out of that one, uh, but it, it was interesting because a couple of days later, I was flying back into the UK. And this is a story I've probably not told on a podcast before, but I'm flying back into the UK and um, landed in Manchester airport, Okay, scan you know, scan the passport. Seemed to be taking a little bit longer than usual. Mm. Didn't think too much of it. Uh, doors opened, gates opened, and went off to get my bags. And just as I was approaching the sort of uh, the sliding doors to go and get my bag, uh, there was a guy stood there in a suit, and he just said, "Mr. France, can I have a word with you?" I'm like, okay. <laughs> and uh, it turned out he was from MI5. And they were interested in what I was doing out there. And so then I was questioned by MI5. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, th- th- these things happen, but I, I I didn't have anything to hide. So I was as interested as he was as to why they wanted to speak to me. Mm. Yeah, I didn't have anything to well, hide. Why
1: and... why you got clobbered? Because when you do go mm. through passport control, you, like you say, it takes a bit longer. You're like, oh mate, what are they looking at? What are yeah, they looking yeah. at? What are they looking at? And they get through, but you also know there's undercover there in suits. Yeah. Every airport you go to, which is great.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they've got a job to do, haven't yeah. they? Um, but what they would have done, again, like I, I, I made some contacts after this who sort of gave me some background on what why, why they're doing this. So they are essentially profiling people, and they would have figured out through various algorithms, through flight data, where I've come from, where I've traveled from, um, and, and they would have probably looked at me, profiled me, and maybe thought, has he potentially, you know, is he ex-military, something like yeah. that? Could he have been going, joining some some fighting, you know, group who are fighting against terrorists mm-hmm. in Iraq, something like that? Uh, so that probably would be in their their logic. But you know, I did have everything there I needed to show that I was I was guiding a group out mm-hmm. there. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, some of these things things do happen.
1: What an adventure! Yeah, what yeah. A, what an eventful life so far. Yes. What about moving forwards then? Is your wife still fully supportive of you for you to go away for, to do another month or two months away away from the kids and 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 Emma, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's Emma. Yeah. 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 So, th- since having kids, definitely. How old are the boy? How old are the kids? One is two and yeah. one is uh, almost one. Okay. So yeah, almost three and almost yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, so still very little, and I think you know anyone who's had kids it does whatever you're doing you know, it changes your perspe- perspective yeah. of risk a little bit yeah. so in terms of the risks i'm willing to take i've probably reined it in slightly but you know that said i'm just now embarking on a, a massive uh global expedition project called the ultimate seven project this is all seven continents basically world first project uh, which i'm just about to launch into or just have launched into um but this is all th- this is sort of yeah, what I'm focusing my career on and building my career off the back of this. So now I feel like what I do needs to have more purpose and it needs to be, I suppose, not just pure indulgence. It's, mm-hmm. you know, especially if I am taking risks there, it's, it's a bit harder to justify. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I'm now going for more quality over quantity. So it's not quite as many countries, but still a lot of um, a lot of big, crazy expeditions. Have yeah. you ever
1: thought about, you want to, like I hit a number, say, well, it's 195 countries. I want to hit a certain number before I'm brown bread. To go, yeah. well, I want, a tell them fifty 50. Is there a number in your mind?
0: I mean, I'd love to see them all. I'd yeah. love to see them all. Yeah. I mean, it's most of these countries have come in the last 10 years. Uh, yeah, probably 50 or more of them. So I don't see why, you know, what is there another 120 left? Don't see why I couldn't do them all. Some of them, you know, are going to be more interesting than others. But the good news is I've done a lot of the hard ones. Yeah. So yeah, I've got a lot wow. of the nice ones left.
1: Oli, I've really, really enjoyed this
0: episode. Ah, oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, mate. What me
1: what a, what an eventful life you've lived.
0: Well, yeah. And I uh, think
1: there's shed load more to come, isn't there?
0: There's a lot more. Yeah, mm. yeah. Where can people <laughs> find you? So come and find me on Instagram at Ollie underscore France. And I do, yeah, for for anyone who is maybe got their appetite wet for a bit of an adventure, come and hook me up. I do run lots of expeditions, so you can find me on there and, and follow, follow my expeditions yeah. on there.
1: Mate, I love your mindset. Ah, oh, thanks, mate. You've got a brilliant mind. You've got an open mind. There's not many people with that growth mindset of going, "Bring it on! Let me go on adventure. Let me try that. I'll try this. I'll try that." Brilliant.
0: Yeah. Where'd you get that
1: from? Is it mum and dad, or just yourself?
0: I think probably probably a lot. You know, a lot of what I've done has has fed into it. So it's for me, I, I've sort of noticed a correlation, which is whenever you have an open mind, that's when the good stuff starts Absolutely. to happen. Absolutely. If you have a closed mind you know, goodbye opportunities, you're, you're going Boring. to miss everything. Boring. So yep. all the best things happen when you open your mind. Agreed. I've found that all over Agreed. the world. Ollie, it's yeah. been a pleasure, mate. Ah, loved it. Thank you really so much it. for coming
1: all the way down from Wigan.
0: Ah, my pleasure. Yeah, Thank mate. you for having me on. You're a, a great conversation. Man. You're a good
1: man. Thanks cheers, very Cheers,
0: cheers, Dodge.